us that are hanging out, how are we doing? All right, all right. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about prayer. We this is our third sermon in prayer. We've been working through the ideal and the topic and the and the and, and the thought of prayer, and we've been looking at different people in the Bible and 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 trying to understand and trying to understand prayer by asking ourselves, what does it look like to pray like these people? And so we've asked ourselves, what does it look like to pray like Paul? Last week we've asked our, we asked ourselves, what did it look like to pray like David? This week we want to ask ourselves, what does it look like to pray like Moses? What does it look like to pray like Moses? I want to ask you a question. What is the highest request that you've made to God? What is the highest request? You don't have to answer it, but just answer it to yourself. What is the highest request that you've made to God? Maybe it's to be, be more like more, more godly. Maybe it, maybe it's, maybe it's to have a great marriage, or maybe it's to ha- be a great father, great mother. Maybe it's to, maybe it's to be a great friend. Maybe it's to be successful, or, 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 or to, to have, to have a good, solid, just a good, solid, healthy life. What is the, what is the highest request that you've ever made to God? Moses's highest request is in the, is in the passage that we're reading. This morning, Moses' highest request to God is to have God. Moses' biggest and largest and greatest request to God is to have God. And, 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 and as we look at this request, what we find is that it's not just a request that Moses should be making, but it's a request that all of us should be looking to make, to have God, to have more of God. To know God, to be present with God, and to, and to behold the glory of God. That's the highest request that anyone under heaven can make. To know God, to have God, to, to be present with God, to see God's glory unfolded before them. The first thing we need to know about Moses' prayer is actually not found in chapter 33. It's actually found in chapter 32. The position that Moses finds himself in is 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 found in chapter 32 and that position is what leads to the prayer that Moses prays. The children of Israel in chapter 32 are awaiting Moses's return from the top of the mountain in which he is speaking with God, Mount Sinai. And it's up there that Moses receives the foundations for God's covenant with them, the foundations for God's law for his people. And it's here that God's presence was manifested before Moses in this really, really, really powerful way to teach Moses what, what, what God expected from his people in terms of how they were actually supposed to live and actually supposed to be. But apparently Moses was taking too long up there. Because while Moses was up there receiving all of this grandiose knowledge and wisdom and presence and experience from God, the the children of Israel were down at the bottom of the mountain summoning Moses' brother and asking Moses' brother to make them idols out of gold, golden calves as you may have already been aware of. And so Moses is up here receiving word and vision from God and, and, and the children of Israel are down below making gods. They said in chapter 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. 
Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We often replace God when we grow impatient with God. We often replace God when we grow impatient with God. We often replace God when we grow doubtful of God. But our replacements never measure up, do they? Some of our replacements we build look, or look more like gold and look more like rocks and look more like wood. But, but some of our replacements are other things. Some of our replacements are idols of substance, food, alcohol, drugs. Some of our replacements are idols of celebrity, look like us, other people. Even Beyonce just, this re- just recently had this massive, massive uh, signage at one of her concerts. And on one side, there was two massive banners. On, the, on, the, on, on, on your left and my right, there was the banner that said, I am not God. Rather, it said, God is God. And then on the left side, or your right, the other banner read, I am not. God is God. I am not. Why did she have to say that? Because so many people treat her as she is God. Many of those objects of worship come from our impatience and our doubt of God. The golden calf came from this. So God sees this idolatrous behavior. He becomes furious with Israel. He commits to destroy them. And Moses grows furious as well and comes down from the mountain and and destroys the idols, the golden calf. And he confronts Israel for their idolatry and his brother he confronts for agreeing to such an evil request from the people. But another thing that Moses does before he leaves the mountain is he petitions God for mercy. God says, hey, what are you people doing down there? They're making idols. You're up here talking to me and they're making calves. And Moses says, Lord, please have mercy on them. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In other words, remember what you promised your people before you destroy them. And so God agrees with that, and, and, and their disobedience, he gives mercy to, but he does not give mercy without consequence. And this is where verse 30, uh, chapter 33 comes in, because God begins in verse 1 of chapter 33 by saying, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, and then he goes on and he begins to describe what, what he's saying to them, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. 
So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from, from Mount Horeb, Horeb onward. God commits to allowing the people to go into the land that he promised them. He promised them this from the beginning and he commits to allowing them to go. The land is still flowing with milk and honey. He doesn't say that he's going to cut it off. And the land will be free of the enemies. He said that he's going to conquer those enemies. And yet we read in verse 4 that this news is disastrous for them. And the question is why? Why is it disastrous to go into a land that's flowing with milk and honey? In a land that there is no enemies in sight? In a land that you was promised to, 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 to inherit for your people? It's because they lost something along the way. You start to see what they lost in verse 1 when the Lord declares Israel as the people rather than his people. Most of the time when God talks about Israel, he talks about my people. Now he's saying the people. In other words, a relational God is growing impersonal. You see it again in verse 2 when God promises not to send a particular angel or a more personal messenger, my angel, but instead promises to send an angel. A relational God growing more and more impersonal. And then in verse 3 you hear God say, I will not go up among you. I will not go. See, this reality of God not going with us is where Moses' prayer actually begins. Failure doesn't hit us hard unless a cost is associated with it, but it doesn't even hit us hard then unless we have an appreciation or a recognition of the cost. Moses recognizes the cost, which introduces Moses' prayer in verse 12. Moses' prayer is a desperate prayer because he and the people both realize the cost of their sin. God says, go into the land that I promise you. There'll be milk and honey there. There will be no enemies there. You will have a place to dwell, but I won't go. And so for the people, the word is disastrous because God will not go. Verse 14, Moses says, rather, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses responds, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. What we must first realize about our prayer lives is that they are often weak, not because we ask God for too much, but in fact, we ask God for too little. Here's what's inconvenient and unfortunate about our prayer lives is that many of us, would have been quite satisfied with the announcement God made to Israel. If God promised to put you in the place you wanted to be, God promised to give you the possessions and the property that you always dreamed of, God promised to rid you of all of your enemies and those obstructions and obstacles in your life, many of us would say, amen. We would arise from our knees, happy people, right? Rejoicing at the fact that all of these things were accomplished for us. And with all of these things, we still wouldn't have anything. This is what Moses realizes. And unbelievably, in the moment, this is what Israel realizes. This is why they mourn at the thought of God not going with them, even though just a little while ago, they were making a calf to replace him. 
C.S. Lewis once said that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and with sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the, at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The psalm that's in the 73rd Psalm writes in, in Psalm 73 verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? The psalmist isn't thinking about streets of gold. He isn't thinking about pearls. He isn't thinking about houses, mansions. He isn't thinking about property. He isn't thinking about any of those things. He's saying, in heaven I have you. And there is nothing on earth that I desire, he continues, besides you. This is where all of our requests and all of our petitions to God should rest. They should be founded and rested on the truth that I can have everything besides God and still have nothing because I don't have God. Moses goes, goes as far as saying in verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Notice how Moses defines true favor, not merely in possessions. He doesn't say, hey, well, we'll have a bunch of gold chains when we go to the promised land. That'll show them that we have your favor. No, he says, he says I need you in order for them to know that I've been favored. He says, we need your presence. The presence of God is the mark of true favor for Moses. It's the mark of true distinction for Moses. God being with us is what makes us us. See, for us, the favor of God is most on display in us when the people around us are saying that Jesus is truly with us. The favor of God is most on display in us when the people around us are saying that Jesus is truly with us. When you pray, you can fill your request with a number of things, but you must not forget to fill your request with a call for God. At the end of the day, no matter what else you request God, whatever, what else you request from God, you should simply be saying, God, I need you. Before your need for possessions, before your need for a new house, a new home, before your need for deliverance out of a situation, you need God. And so this is what's shaping Moses' prayer. Think about the last good month of prayer that you had. How many of those prayers that you prayed had at their foundation a passion not to have more money for bills or, or more money for entertainment, not to have a wife or find a wife or find a husband, not to fix a wife or fix a husband and not to fix children or not to get a promotion or get a job or not to get a new house, not to get a new car, not to get even a new dog? How many of those prayers prayed over the last month had at their root a desire to have God. How many of those prayers over the last month came with the reality that I can ask him 
for all of these other things, but if he is not with me when I receive them, I'd rather not have them. It is this desire that's driving and shaping Moses' prayers in this chapter. He says that he wants to know God. He says in verse 12, see, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Listen, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Part of having God is knowing God. He wants to know God. The request for favor is a request to know God more. He says, since I have found favor, can I know you more? Isn't that interesting? Most of the time we link favor to other things, right? Since I have found favor, that means a new job, right? That means a new car. That means a new house. That means a great wife. That means a great marriage. He says, no, since I have found favor, I want to know you. Jesus says in John 17 that the very essence of eternal life is not possessions, it's not things, it's knowing God. He says in verse 3 of chapter 17 of John, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that he would rather give up everything in order to know God. He says, I count everything as lost. For the surpassing worth of knowing God. And that's what Moses is praying in this text. He wants to know God because he knows that that is where true treasure can be found for him. And we must also understand that this knowledge is not academic simply. It is not a collection of facts about God. It is a personal and relational knowing of God. He says, I want to know you and I want to know your way. I want to be familiar with how you would want me to respond in life. I want to be so near to you that I can just automatically understand what brings you joy and what brings you displeasure. This is at the heart of Moses' prayer. Is is this at the heart of your prayers? To know God. Moses says in verse 13, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this is that this nation is your people. In other words, Moses says something really, really amazing here. His request is found in favor. And so he says, if I have found favor, can I know you more in order that I might find favor? In other words, he says that the favor he has found, he wants to use and leverage to know God more because in knowing God more, he knows there's more favor that comes with that. If favor is found in your presence, basically Moses is saying, and favor is defined in knowing God, then it only makes sense that more knowing him would lead to more favor from him. He prays for not only his favor, but he prays for the favor of those around him. He makes a second appeal. He says, God, will you go with us? The first appeal, it's almost as if God is saying, yeah, I'll go with you. And then in verse 14, he says, consider 
the nation of your people. He brings it back to God, right? God was saying the people. He was like, no, these are your people, God. Don't forget them. We know that they made golden calves down at the bottom of the mountain. But, but don't just go with me. Go with them. The closer we are to God, the deeper our knowledge of God, the more of his glory we desire to see, the more gracious we become to other people around us. The more loving we become to other people around us, the more merciful we become to other people around us. We move beyond just wanting God for ourselves to, to, to wanting him for us, right? We want all of his people to experience deeper fellowship with him and deeper intimacy with him when we get near him. Moses, finally, he prays for presence, he prays for knowledge, but he also prays for glory. In verse 18, he is praying for glory. He says, please show me your glory. And God says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Again, I just want to highlight the the nature of Moses' request. Over and over and over again, he is saying, I want you, I want you, I want you. I want your presence. I want your knowledge, relational knowledge. And I want to see your glory. Everything in Moses is crying out more of God. God tells him, I'll give you the land. Moses cries out, give me you. God tells him, I'll give you your enemies. Moses cries out, give me you. God tells him, I'll give you milk and honey. Moses says, but we need you. Now, a couple of things about this glory. God says, initially, you can't see it completely because if you see it, you will die. This is is a reminder of our humanness before God, but it's also a reminder of our sinfulness before God. The Apostle Paul in the book, in the letter that he writes to Rome, he says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. Our mere nature prohibits us and keeps us from beholding him just based on our own merit. We can't come to God on our own. And so what God does in showing Moses his glory is that he makes provision for Moses in his humanness and sinfulness. He says in verse 21 that there's a place for me where you shall stand on the rock, and while glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so Moses can't stand before God on his own and see his glory completely, so God makes provision for Moses. He says, I'll put you in the cleft. You can see my back. God wants us to see as much of him as humanly possible. And so he makes provision for Moses. Here's the good news. Those that truly desire to know God will not be denied by God. He will make himself known to us and will set up provision for us. 
God makes his glory known in a sermon. He says, I'll pass by you. And he passes by Moses in chapter 34. And as he passes by Moses, he preaches. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving sin and iniquity and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And this is how, this is how Moses is, is shown God's glory. That as he shows him his glory, he's declaring his attributes and he's declaring his character because all of that wrapped up is a part of his glory. He is merciful. His glory is seen in his mercy. He is gracious because his glory is seen in his grace. He is slow to anger and patient because his glory is seen in his patience. He is abounding in love and abounding in faithfulness. You can count on God. His glory is seen in that. He is forgiving, and he has even shown his forgiveness to the children of Israel in this very moment. And his glory is seen in that. And yet he is just. And you can see his glory found in how he executes just justice against the wicked. But all of this is really just a shadow of what God is doing and showing Moses his glory. What we see in Moses, what we see in this picture, or what we see in this moment, is a picture of the moment to come. Because God's glory is fully revealed through Christ. And so when I said earlier that God will make provision for us to behold his glory, the greatest provision that he has made for us to behold his glory was the provision that he made through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, you behold the glory of God. In fact, John, the, John, the, the author of the Gospel of John, he tells us that we behold the glory of God through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And full of truth. He goes on in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at his father's side. He has made him known. He says, no one has ever seen God fully, but through Jesus, we see him fully. We behold his glory fully. This is what Paul is saying in, in 2 Corinthians when he talks about that we used to, uh, that, that the people had to look at the glory that was being shown on Moses with a veil. But now we can behold with a, with a veil that has been lifted. We can look. Why? Because of Jesus. We completely and fully can see the glory of God. The last thing I'll say is this. Notice that. In chapter 34, if you go on and you read it, what you'll find is that when Moses comes in contact with God's glory, that glory transforms Moses. He comes back to the people and his face is shining so brightly that it nearly blinds them to look at him. And they have to look at him with a covered veil. One, of the, one, one theologian and pastor by the name of Tony Morita highlights this connection that in, in that moment with Moses and ultimately with us and Jesus in this quote. He says, for us, 
When we are with God, we will shine. Remember what they said about Peter and John, the early days of the church, when they saw their boldness. Luke said when they observed when they observed that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and knew that they had been with Jesus. And then he says this, do people know that you have been with Jesus? Do people know that you have been with Jesus? Are people surprised when you tell them that you serve Jesus? Like, really? I didn't know that. Huh. That's interesting. Well, do people, can people kind of, yeah, I kind of figured that. I could see that. Are you tracking with that? Do people know that you have been with Jesus? He continues, Tony Marita, and he says, we are also transformed as we gaze and look on Christ. Paul explained that the glory of the new covenant is superior to this old covenant glory that Moses knew. How so? The Holy Spirit is indwelling believers. And through that indwelling, now we are being moved from glory to glory. And lastly, he says, through Christ and in Christ, we gaze on the glory of God. As we behold Jesus, we are transformed. This is the privilege we share. We are not transformed by talking about transformation. We are transformed by beholding Jesus. We become like that which we worship, end quote. We become like that which we worship. You worship money, you become like money. You worship your job, you become like your job. You worship food, substance, you become like it. You worship celebrities, you become like them. You worship Jesus, you become like Jesus. Praying like Moses is an invitation to become more and more like Jesus asking for his presence, asking to know him, asking, to sh- uh, asking him to show you his glory in the person and in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, is an invitation for you and I to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to go up to the mountain, but to come down from the mountain shining, like he shines. Let's pray.